Hello, and welcome to Going Viral. I am David Lim. It is Monday, the 3rd of May. Professor Stephen Duckett looks at the issues raised by the catastrophic wave of COVID-19 sweeping through so many countries that do not have the capacity to deal with it. Despite sitting pretty at the moment, there are challenges for us in Australia to address, such as the poorly executed vaccine rollout, vaccine hesitancy, and our leaking hotel quarantine system. The end game is the safe opening up of our international border. Professor Duckett, please tell us about yourself. So uh, thank you, David. Um, I'm the director of the Health and Aged Care Program at the Grattan Institute. I'm an economist, uh, but I've been working in the health industry for too long, more years than I care to uh, remember. Well, thank you for giving us your time, Stephen. I want to start by looking at what's happening overseas, uh, especially in India, Turkey, Iran. Now, as a health economist, what sorts of alarm bells are ringing for you? There are a number of reasons we should be concerned about it. The first is it is a human tragedy of immense size. There are hundreds of people dying every day. Hospitals are being overwhelmed. They're running out of oxygen. It is just a tragedy. And this is a country that we know well. Many of us have had holidays there. You know, we've got friends and so on from India, a country with whom we have close relations. And so we should be concerned about what is happening in that country just because they are our neighbours. Secondly, there is a, an issue for the, for the whole world, the globe, that, that basically while the virus is, is circulating rapidly in any country, there is a chance of mutations. Mm -hmm. And those mutations then impact on us as they come back into this country. There's both our, our concern for their tragedy and also the impact of any circulation of the virus causing mutations which make us harder to fight the virus here in Australia. Now, what sorts of outcomes will this ongoing wave upon wave of COVID have on the health economy, wealth distribution and health access um, to these countries who are suffering so badly at the moment? How's it all going to end, Stephen? So all of any country where the virus is circulating results or involves reduction in economic activity, mm -hmm. either because they have locked, they implement lockdowns to restrict activity or because of just the terrible death rate mm -hmm. means that industries are totally and completely disrupted because there is less employment generally. There's, you know, the, 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 the market shrinks as people die. It, the, 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 the industries that are involved, it's just a terrible impact on the economy. What we've seen globally is those countries that have managed the, the pandemic better have also had the better economic outcomes. And also similarly, those that have done stronger restrictions and, and tried to get to zero have had better economic outcomes. So we have this terrible uh, double whammy on a country like India that both we've got this ter these terrible health effects and we're going to have terrible economic impacts uh, into the medium term. And I guess my question was, how do you think that's going to play out for this country in the medium term? Because there's just going to be so much disruption and so much dislocation of um, wealth and poverty. Yes, we've seen some 
really terrible equity effects. Mm-hmm. Even in Australia, the, the people who are most affected, uh, adversely affected by, by COVID are the ones that have been in precarious employment. Uh, lower socioeconomic status people were in jobs, which meant that they they couldn't shelter at home and so on. So there were there was an there was an adverse equity impact, an adverse equity gradient of it uh, in in Australia. And the same is true in these other countries uh, that the poor are most uh, affected. And generally across the world, poorer countries are having the worst experience because they can't afford vaccines. They the health system is is collapsing and so on. So there's terrible international global equity impacts. And to make it worse, billionaires are getting even wealthier. So Amazon, the value of Amazon, for example, with its online sales and so on, has has increased. And so you know, so so, so some of the wealthiest people in the world have become even wealthier. And so the income disparity uh, between the wealthiest and the poorest is getting worse. What kind of work do we have to do as a global community somehow to help these countries get through this horrendous uh, experiences? So, David, it, it, it's like it is with anything. We have to recognise our common humanity and we have to say it is part of our interest, it's part of our job, it's part of our responsibility to, to be worried about these other countries. We should be supplying some of our vaccines to the Papua New Guinea or uh, to, to actually manage, help manage the disease in that country. We should be providing resources to India because it is in our interest as well as our humanity to mm. have those countries uh, control the virus. Now let's look in, inwards now into Australia and in many ways, um, Stephen, it had been said that the public health destiny of a pandemic is determined by our politicians. Um, do you have any comments to make regarding this statement? So, David, we had to make some severe political decisions. So taking away my freedom to go out shopping or go to work uh, is, a, is a decision which is legitimately a political decision. And so it should be legitimately taken by politicians. Better politicians listen to the advice of health experts. Uh, and I think that's generally what happened in Australia. So mm-hmm. obviously the leadership of the pandemic, the, main, the critical decisions were about how confident our politicians were. And what we saw in Australia, David, was significant differences in views about what the right answer was. And so who knows what the the health advice they were getting. But if you cast your mind back to last year, there were differences in views about how long the lockdown should should last in Victoria. And and the federal politicians were saying, lift the lockdown earlier. And the state politicians were saying, no, we want to keep it. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we we had different views about what was the right answer. And as in retrospect, we know the right answer was to to get rid of COVID and to live in a way we're living now. And of course, you brought to an interesting point um, that there is this inc- very interesting uh, two level systems in Australia with the federal government and the state government. Uh, I, I, I also hark back to the uh, closing of state borders, which was actually frowned upon by Canberra. And yet, um, it, so many of us would think that our state premiers actually make the right decision. Um, and there's a real push from Canberra to basically open the economy. Yes. Yeah, so, 
you know, we've had a, a couple of elections already uh, where the the state governments that closed the borders and took very tough decisions, even being, you know, heavily criticised by the politicians in Canberra, uh, the public actually thought, no, nah, they're looking after our safety. They're doing the right thing. They're, they've said, you know, we don't want those nasty Victorians. And I mean, I'm one of those who's been refused entry into three separate states. <laughs> um, so I applied to go to Queensland, South Australia and Western Australia and uh, knocked back because of those border closures. And my view is they made the right decision. They actually said, we are prioritising the health of our population, the yeah. safety of our population over, in one case, two cases, I wanted to go to a meeting and one case I wanted to go on a holiday. Well, Stephen, there is currently, again, a federal state, I wouldn't call it a stoush, but certainly a divergence of views. And we hear that coming from our Western Australian Premier uh, and also, no, actually it's Victorian uh, and the federal government about the quality of our hotel quarantine and the fact that um, most of the state premiers probably believe in the airborne transmission of COVID-19 and possibly less so at the federal level. How do you see this playing out? So David, back in February, everybody knew that COVID was transmitted by droplets. And you know, you just have to be one and a half meters away and you wouldn't be infected because the drops would drop to the ground. Well, sometime after February, we know that COVID is, is transmitted by aerosol transmission, that tiny particles spread around a room pretty rapidly. And yet our thinking in some cases is unchanged. You know, we haven't thought through what are the implications of aerosol transmission or hotel quarantine and the ventilation requirements. You know, hotel, if you go to a hospital, you've got negative pressure rooms for people who are infected and all those sorts of things and heavily, you know, a huge amount of money spent on, on the um, ventilation systems, whereas that's not what the business of hotels are or nursing homes, residential aid care facilities for that matter. And so we've got some hotels, Mercure in Western Australia being an example, which are really not fit for a quarantine purpose. Now, some hotels might be with good ventilation systems, balconies and, and other things, but many are not. And we haven't changed our thinking about hotel quarantine in the light of the knowledge that we've learned over the last 12 months about how the, the virus is spread. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, what might have been seen as the right thing to do back in February 2020 is certainly not the right thing to do in April 2021. And so we've got to, knowledge advances, which is a great thing, but we've got to actually make sure policy advances in line mm -hmm. with those knowledge advances. I also hear that uh, there has been a very recent initiative, again, I believe it's Victorian, to somehow uh, allow students and others from overseas back into Australia to quarantine in a different parallel system. Have you heard of that one? Yeah, what I think I've seen in the paper in Victoria was that they'd allow about 150 or so students in or others in on top of their existing international arrivals cap. So it's not stopping Australians coming back from overseas, uh, but they would have to pay extra and have special quarantine arrangements extra and over and above 
basically, uh, that's a good thing. I, mean, I think it, it, it's good. But really, we have to relook at the fundamentals of our quarantine system and say, you know, we're going to have quarantine for a while. Yep. We've got to actually build some quarantine facilities in appropriate locations, appropriately ventilated cabins, essentially, uh, so that we don't have hotel within hotel quarantine transmission. Uh, we have we increase the capacity so that we can actually start having a large number of people coming back when they want to come. Now, putting on your head, of course, as a um, health economist, um, Stephen, the cost of building new facilities versus living with the risk of more breakouts and partial lockdowns and cities totally locked down. How do you measure and balance these costs? The, the, the cost of continuing to keep the economy closed is very high indeed. There are three industries which are heavily uh, affected by this. Um, the international education industry in universities and schools, the international tourism industry, and hospitality, which spins off, uh, to some extent, both of those industries. And so there is a serious economic cost in keeping the economy closed. And so you could then say, this is an ongoing cost. And the, and the cost of quarantine, bearing in mind, people who arrive in the country actually have to pay $3,000 uh, for a fortnight for quarantine. So the, what you're then saying is, can we actually build temporary accommodation of the, to actually accommodate more people? And you might have to say, well, we're going to up the, the arrival price to 3,500 and we're going to subsidize at 500 or something like that because of the economic benefits. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you can actually do the sums quite quickly about how much would it cost you to build a quarantine facility which would accept a large number of people. The land is free. We've got lots of places where uh, you can erect such a facility. Uh, and you, you, it's not as if you're building something for a 20-year experience. You're building mm -hmm. something for a 20-month experience. Yes. So the, the costs of construction are going to be lower. So, you know, there are lots of things we can do. And the economics are such that it's a big, significant benefit to open up the economy. I hear from what you're saying that you're very supportive of these new facilities being built. What sort of pressure is being mounted on our federal leadership? So basically, it's an interesting, the, the, the Constitution has a clause in it which says the Commonwealth Government can make laws about quarantine. Mm -hmm. And so people say, oh, quarantine is a Commonwealth responsibility. And, and if you'd asked me two years ago, was quarantine a Commonwealth responsibility, I would have said, yep, absolutely, pretty clear. It's there in the Constitution. You know, one of the first things that, that happened was there was a national quarantine. That is, it became a, a national responsibility. Um, yes. And, you know, it's only in the last year that I've realised that, well, the Commonwealth does have power over quarantine, but if it doesn't exercise that power, it's up to the states to exercise it. And oh. that's actually what's happened. And the states have done all the quarantine hard lifting mm -hmm. and the Commonwealth has sat by and just said, nah, we don't want to have anything to do with this because it's hard. And it is hard and they're failures and every state has had failures of quarantine. But so basically what's happening is the states are looking at these uh, opportunities. I know Victoria has, I think, gone to tender for, mm. a, um, for a quarantine facility in, in the way that the Commonwealth had quarantine facilities at Port Nepean, Point Nepean and um, North Head in Sydney. And, uh, you know, we're going back to these quarantine facilities, but they're state run as they were before 1900. 
How interesting. History repeats itself. Indeed, in a way which, as I said, was a surprise to me. We are, of course, hoping, as you said, that the borders will open. And you have already told us that there are three sectors that will be problematic if we don't. There's a huge, as you already mentioned, um, tragedy happening overseas. Many people are not yet being vaccinated overseas. And yet we have two conundrums in, in, in Australia. One is sorting out the quarantine so we can bring people in and get our economy going. And the second is this call to have all of us vaccinated and the rollout being an issue and has become, if you like, um, a weaponized political issue. Which one in your mind uh, is more important to address well with priority? So I think getting quarantine right is, is getting uh, vaccination right is really important. And we haven't done it well. Every, you know, that is an obvious statement. Anybody in the country knows that's been a train wreck. Mm -hmm. And on every dimension, you talk to GPs, they are so angry about, you know, not getting enough supply. You know, the government trumpets, oh, we've done all these contracts. We've got 20 million dose of contract with Pfizer, well, how can we not have 20 million doses coming into the country, et cetera, et cetera. The problem is with all of these problems with vaccination, vaccine hesitancy is going up, not, yep. not helped by the AstraZeneca clot stories. Mm -hmm. So we really have to work on getting the vaccination system smoothly. We've got to make sure the government announces how many doses are coming into the country every week or being produced here and so on. Mm -hmm. And we've got to encourage everybody, especially the vulnerable and people over 70, to get vaccinated. Then the question for government is, what happens if people don't get vaccinated? Yep. And especially what, what, what do we do about the borders? And my view is the government's first job is to get all the vulnerable vaccinated, all the older people, all the people with immunocompromised systems and so on. Mm -hmm. to get them all vaccinated because they are the highest risk. And also, in addition to the benefit to those individuals, if they do get sick, they're the people who use hospital beds. Mm -hmm. And so what we saw in, in all over the world is that younger people have a risk of, of COVID. Do, do not, do not uh, deny that, that young people can be severely affected by COVID but they, they don't use the health system to the same extent as, as older people or people who have got And so if we are protecting the health system, one of the things we can do is, is make sure all of those people are vaccinated as soon as possible. Mm -hmm. Then the question is, what do you do with the under 50s and so on? And again, we should be rolling out vaccination for the under 50s as soon as possible, but because they are hesitant, it's just gonna be harder to do that. And we should be actually prioritizing getting the marketing done, getting explaining to people what the benefits are. Mm. But at the end of the day, we're going to have to make a decision. Are we going to be living with COVID? And, and, and when do we open the borders? It's not a question of if we're going to open the borders. It's a question of when we're going to open the borders. What are the thresholds for deciding when we're going to open the border? And my view is that part of the, you know, there are two schools of thought here. One school of thought says, well, when you've got 80% of the over 70s and the, the other vulnerable people vaccinated, that's good. The other school of thought says when it's 80% of the whole population, that's good. Okay. And it's a really interesting and difficult ethical question, but 
we've got to make sure that everybody has the opportunity to be vaccinated before we, we make those calls. But, you know, where we sit uh, is going to be really interesting. And we're going to have to make that call July, August of this year and give people notice that, hello, the borders are going to be open. Right. You better get your vaccine, vaccine, vaccination as, you know, before we make that call. Wow, that's um, really not an easy position for any government to be in, isn't it? No, and it's 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 a it's a lose lose situation, David. You know, okay. whatever call you make, if you say no, we're not going to open the borders until we've got 80, 90 percent of the population vaccinated, we may never get there, yep. and it, then it has the costs of the the border border closures, the cost to the industries I talked about. On the other hand, if you say we're not we're we're not going to wait till we've got 80 percent of the population, we're just going to have 80 percent of the vulnerable population. Well, what do you? What, do you, what are you saying to pregnant women, for example, who can't get vaccinated? You know, it's a really awful situation to be in, but eventually we're going to have to uh, make that decision. Do you see the uh, new quarantine facilities that you're talking about? Would it make a difference to when we open up the borders, you think? I, I don't think, David, there's any prospect of building enough quarantine facilities mm -hmm. that we reach the same level of immigration as we used to have. Okay. You know, we're, we're, the immigration at the moment, I think, is you know a couple of you know trivial proportion of the the flights that we used to have. Maybe I would say this: you know, if we said if you're going to hop on a plane to Australia, you've got to be vaccinated within the previous six months, and you're going to you're going to be in quarantine for five days or seven days, that actually doubles the number of people we can have arriving because instead of fourteen days, it's seven days. You might even be able to reduce it a little bit less if you have self-isolation with some sort of control over that self-isolation. So, you know, we might have to be thinking of different ways of doing it, but even with the cleverest hotel quarantine or program, we're yeah. not going to, unless we're not going to get, a, a, we're not going to have the same level of immigration that we used to have. So again, wearing your hat as the health economists, looking at all these issues that are before us, what sorts of things are re of great concern to you? David, the more I think about it, the more there are multiple things. Mm -hmm. I'm worried about India. I'm worried about these countries which just have COVID out of control. Yep. In terms of Australia, there's two things. One is the vaccination rollout. We really should be better at that than we are. Mm -hmm. And secondly, and part of that is vaccine hesitancy, that we have a significant proportion, maybe 30, 40% of the population, who are saying, I'm not sure about getting vaccinated or I'm going to wait, I'm over 70, but I'm going to wait to get the Pfizer vaccine. Well, we just don't have that luxury, I don't think. So we've got significant issues in the community about how we are managing and marketing vaccinations, which we should be better at. Why is it that we've got so much debate on television and yet I don't seem to see a whole lot of great educational stuff coming up? It's it's very interesting, David. Um, I, I guess we won't know the we've we've got survey information about vaccine hesitancy, but we really won't see the impacts of it until we've overcome the supply problem of vaccines. At the moment, until very recently, people who wanted vaccination couldn't get vaccination. Still, GPs reporting that they could uh, they could vaccinate more people, but they can't get the doses. On the other hand, the big centres are reporting that there's not the demand that they want, but they, then again, they haven't been advertised. So we won't really know the extent of vaccine hesitancy 
and and where it is occurring for another couple of months until we've really ironed out the supply problems. Okay. And then we're going to realise it's of two kinds. One, we're going to have culturally, linguistically diverse populations yep. who uh, just have to be dealt with by really engaging them with community leaders and, and making it easy to be vaccinated and so on. And then we've got other groups like young women who are reported to have higher levels of vaccine, vaccine hesitancy. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we're going to have to have multiple strategies. And, and like you, David, I've not seen any evidence that the Commonwealth government has got its act together on dealing with vaccine hesitancy at this stage. We, we seem to be sitting on our hands when we're running out of time. It, it really, you know, the government said a little while ago, oh, it's not a race. And then they said, well, if it is a race, it's a marathon, not a sprint. And now they're saying, yep, it's a sprint. But why did they take so long to realise that vaccinations are important and we've got to get them done and we've got to make sure the logistics works and the supply works and the GPs are on board and we've got the mass vaccination centres. It's pretty obvious, you know, all these other countries were doing it way before us and you could see what was working overseas. Why we didn't do it here, I don't know. Mm. I think in my mind, the one country that has made the biggest difference is the UK. The numbers are just looking dramatically different. Hundreds of thousands vaccinated in a day. They've hit 50% of the population. My daughter lives in London and she she reckons that she's going to be vaccinated before me. And she's yeah, a fraction of my age. So it's really, uh, you know, they are doing it extremely well. Don't forget, they've got a good system. The NHS system helped them with the enrolment of patients and all those sorts of things, helped them get their act together on doing it. Uh, but they, compared to Europe, they've done very, very well indeed. Stephen, I just know we've wandered wide in our discussions, but I, I would just ask you now to just think back over where we've been and just summarise some of your thoughts and as key messages to our listeners. I think one of the things we haven't talked about, David, is we are in a very good place. Mm-hmm. The population in Australia did the hard yards and we got to COVID zero. Mm-hmm. So, you know, last week, the Anzac Day uh, footy match, huge crowds, biggest crowd in the world yep. in the last 12 months at, at the footy mm-hmm. matches. So Australia's in a good place. However, Australia can be in a better place. Australia mm-hmm. can actually, should have been in a better place with the vaccination rollout. We should have engaged the states earlier. We should have actually got the mass vaccination centres. We need to lift our game on educating the public about the importance of vaccination, mm-hmm. about uh, the fact that over, over 50s should be using AstraZeneca and, and, it's, and it's okay. Uh, so, you know, we're, we've got the settings there, but we haven't actually got the marketing. And finally, we do need to be worried about everybody else. We can't just say, we are an island, we don't care about anybody else. Mm-hmm. Should and we do. Stephen, I really appreciate spending this time with you. And um, yeah, I, I'm sure when you signed up for this job, after all these years, as you said, you would not imagine we had to deal with these sorts of things. And you, I, I, I think, my friend, you, you, you've got to sit there sometimes wanting to tear your hair out because sometimes decisions are obvious, but they're just not made in such a manner. And I think it comes back to that one of the, your earlier points, David, that, you know, the the success of the pandemic is partly the success of the politicians and sometimes they've been making two political decisions um, which unfortunately were the wrong ones. Stephen we will part on that note and I hope to speak to you again one day. Thanks David. Thank you for your time. Just a quick reminder as we wrap up to encourage you to register for the next webcast 
where you can always catch a high-quality lineup of speakers and topics that HealthEd has put together for you. HealthEd webcasts are carefully created to provide high-quality video and audio so that you have the best possible learning experience. It's free. You get CPD points and it's all delivered directly to the digital device of your choice, wherever you choose to be. Register now at healthad.com.au. This episode's code word is abrasion. You may enter the listener's draw on the podcast webpage.